gentlemen to box office pulp your one-stop podcast for movies madness and moxie i'm your host cody joining me today are my co-hosts mike and jamie but who cares about them we have a special guest that's two weeks in a row i can't believe our luck we've got with us today jay blake Fichera, the author of score to death and score to death 2 plus would it be fair to kind of call you a jack of all trades i see you like you've got a ton of editing credits on imdb a handful of acting credits uh, a little uh, bit of everything, plus a new Kickstarter you're the director of. Like, you're kind of on everything. I uh, I keep busy, that's for sure. <laughs> I feel like if I ever had a kick, uh, like a like an IMDb page, it'd just say, like, eh, who's around? <laughs> yeah, Before I, uh, we, we actually get into things, I do, I'm really excited. We just saw that you were uh, in Harold and Kumar, <laughs> and well, we all got really excited. <laughs> well, uh, I'll say if you if you watch the movie, you won't. You won't see me in it. Let's just put it that way. Uh, Unfortunately, <laughs> I hate the burster bubble. Oh man, it's okay. You could have lied to me. I think it's a Christmas movie, so I would have forgotten by then. <laughs> but I'm sorry to interrupt. But yeah, thank you so much for being on the show. I absolutely love both Score to Death books, uh, and I, I can't wait for your latest project, the Kickstarter you've got going to do an actual Score to Death kind of documentary. Yeah, thanks. I I appreciate it. Um, yeah, the books were a labor of love to begin with. Um, I was very lucky to be able to do them and get so many people involved in them. Uh, for people that don't know, the books are a collection of interviews, pretty in-depth interviews that I did with, uh, between the two books, 30 film composers that have made significant contributions to the horror genre. And uh, I've already started filming, but right now uh, through November 1st, we're trying to raise money to keep filming a Score to Death documentary called Score to Death, The Dark Art of Scary Movie Music. and uh, it's not really, um, I, you know, I guess that the common term would be to, that it's based on the books, but it's really just kind of a, a new, ex, a, an exploration of, of scary movie music like the books were, but in a totally different way. Like it's, the plan is not to make the books like an abridged, not to make the movie an abridged version of the books. It's to kind of explore horror film music in a way that I wasn't able to explore it with, uh, with the books. So uh, I'm pretty excited about it. So with the documentary segments, uh, are you able to actually get any of their score for those? Is that kind of considered a fair use thing? Well, the the hope is that, uh, you know, the the videos that I've been posting online are, are pretty liberal <laughs> in terms of how, <laughs> how I've been using them. Uh, yeah, it will be uh, an issue with the documentary. So the hope is... Uh, that we will be able to be very strategic about how we use everything and be able to fit everything under fair use. But um, that's going to, uh, that's going to be, you know, to do that, we're going to need a very good lawyer uh, that specializes in that kind of thing. Um, because it just, a movie like this wouldn't, I just wouldn't, it would cost way too much to try to do it uh, just as willy nilly, you know? So, the, oh, but, sure. but the way, that I plan on doing it, I think it's um, a very realistic that we can make something really special uh, with fair use because so much of it is going to be about how music works within horror movies. Um, and of course, we're going to discuss some of the greatest or most popular scores in, in horror movie history. Uh, but I think the way we're going about it and how they're going to be discussed, I think it's a very... 
I think I feel good about being able to do it uh, fair use and be able to still deliver a product that's going to be really special and, and great. Yeah. And and correct me if I'm wrong, isn't one of the rewards on the Kickstarter, if you pledge enough, uh, kind of a compilation CD that comes along with? Yeah. When I, when I was trying to set up the Kickstarter, uh, you know, a lot of campaigns promise a soundtrack album and not knowing how much money I'd be able to raise. I didn't know if I'd be able to afford to hire a composer to do a score, an original score for the documentary itself, or else I'd be, or if I'd have to use library cues. And in that case, I wouldn't be able to release an album. So what I did was I thought of like, well, what can I release? Because obviously it's a project about film music and film music has such a huge uh, collector's base, including myself. So um, I said, uh, I thought, you know, like a compilation of covers of horror movie themes would be really cool. So I just started reaching out to composers and musicians uh, and bands that I liked and that I wanted to hear do covers of things. And uh, to my uh, surprise, many said yes. <laughs> so <laughs> so uh, exclusively through the Kickstarter is a limited edition album, score to death album of horror movie covers uh, on both CD and vinyl uh, with a plethora of great composers like Alan Howarth, uh, Wojciech Kolchewski, the band Voyager, uh, the band Anima Morte, Steve Moore from the band Zombie, uh, Holly Amber Church, who's in the documentary and in the second book, um, the Blair Brothers, uh, if I'm forgetting anybody off the top of my head, I apologize, but there's been a, 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 a fantastic lineup of people have, have agreed out of the kindness of their heart and their belief in the project to record new versions of popular and sometimes I wouldn't say some of them are not popular, but are awesome in, in like a very cultish kind of way, uh, horror themes and uh, donating them exclusively to this compilation album for the movie. So uh, it just goes to show you uh, uh, it never hurts to ask <laughs> and, 100%. and, and uh, that uh, there are some truly uh, wonderfully generous people out there willing to support uh, cool projects. Oh, that's so exciting. And it's, I, I mean, right now is especially kind of a big swing for vinyl. It seems like sales have increased every single year for what, the past decade? <laughs> so it's yeah. a format that's surged. Plus, I mean, with all the stuff like on Waxworks, like all the special collector's editions for horror vinyl, it's amazing all the stuff that's out there right now. Yeah, it's really, it. that all kind of, it's funny. When I started the original book, well, the first Scored to Death book, uh, scored to death conversations with some of Harvard's greatest composers. I started it in super late 2013. Um, and then it came out in 2000, summer of 2016. So I kind of started it right at the cusp of that. Uh, I think Mondo and Death Waltz had started releasing stuff. I'm not sure that Waxwork had released anything yet by the time, you know, they did while I was doing it, but I don't think they did when I started. So by yeah. the time by the time the book came out in 2016, you know there were all these labels and there was all these fantastic uh, releases and John Carpenter was on tour. It was like the the first <laughs> book the first book came out like on the crest of this wave of popularity in horror film music. So uh, in 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 that sense, I I got timing right for the first book. Yeah, well, and timing for the documentary seems like it's pretty strong too because we have so many really great kind of long form 
horror documentaries hitting hitting shelves. I think there's definitely a hunger from fans for something a little bit more in depth. Yeah, I hope so. I, I'm beginning to think that unfortunately, maybe October was not the best time to uh, <laughs> run a Kickstarter campaign for it because I think it's getting a little bit little lost act. in the shuffle of publicity for other horror related things. Uh, if if I were to do it over again, I, I don't know if I would have done it right now. Uh, but it was like either that or I didn't want to wait till like November or December because then it was the holidays and people are right spending money on that and traveling. And then it was like, okay, well then am I waiting till next year to start, you know, raising money for it? And so, um, I got shot the same problem as movie studios. You just need to dump <laughs> it in January and that's when people show up. Yeah. Yeah. I started shooting the, I shot the first five interviews in June. I flew out to California to do that. Luckily through doing the books, I've been able to, um, form relationships and friendships with the many amazing composers. And so I knew that for the Kickstarter campaign, I would need something to show as to what we were trying to do and some of the people involved. So I, I flew out to LA in June, shot basically five interviews in five days, and then I flew back to New York. And then, uh, so the, when you, if you visit the campaign or you follow me on social media, and you're seeing videos from the movie. That's, that's all stuff from the first five interviews I shot. And um, there are other composers that have signed on, like Christopher Young and John Massari and Alan Howarth, who I didn't have a chance to interview yet. And uh, I didn't reach out to too many more because, it, you know, it's really going to depend on whether we can raise enough money to keep going and how much money we raise. Um, I didn't want to kind of pack the the cast before we really knew what kind of film we were going to be able to make with the budget. Like I didn't want to approach John Carpenter with like, hopefully we'll be able to make this movie. Will you be in it? Um, right. You know, it's like, and, it's like approaching the wizard of Oz. Like, <laughs> we have to be as impressive as possible. Yeah. I wanted to make sure we had an actual thing. You know, like we were, you know, green lit for lack of a better term. Um, so, you know, the hope is I don't want to be a doc. I'm trying to avoid being a documentary that has like, 400 people in the cat, you know, like here from, and I want it to be a pretty, I'm going to try to keep it to a good 90 minutes, two hours. And I want everybody to, ha you know, have a, a good role in it. So I, I'm trying to be pretty selective of the amount of people that go in it. But uh, I definitely would love, you know, the plan is to get more involved than are currently kind of signed on to be in it. It just, uh, it's, a, it's a whole you know, I'm trying to, I'm figuring it all out, but there's going to be much more yeah. than, than like the, you know, seven, eight people that have already signed on. But yeah. I mean, in the first book, the interview with Christopher Young was, I mean, he's so entertaining on the page. I can't wait to actually see him like, you know, do a video interview. So that, that's exciting. Get that part in there. Yeah. Chris is uh, amazing. Um, many people have, have told me that their favorite interview in the first book is Chris's. And I think a lot of that has to do with how, honest he is um <laughs> about sure. his about his career and um his uh inter conflicts with his career and what he and being a, a horror composer uh i feel like that interview was really kind of raw in in some ways um that interview was made up of maybe three interviews that we did together um over a period of time when i was doing them uh, but Chris is, um, because of that, uh, since then, Chris has become a, a, a wonderful close friend. He wrote the afterword for the second book. Um, and uh, he's, 
just uh, one of my favorite people of all time. He's he's literally like a give give you a shirt off his back kind of <laughs> kind of guy. So uh, I'm excited to. I wasn't able to interview him when I went out in June, but uh, we're both he and I are both looking forward to sitting down and, and chatting again. That's gonna be great. So you mentioned for the book originally you had to kind of piece together three different interviews. Uh, most of the interviews in the books are what around twenty some pages. Like, did you, did you have to do all of those kind of in different segments or did some people just sit down and talk to you straight for a couple of hours to get all of that? Um, it was mostly, I'd say the vast majority of the interviews for both books were single interviews. Um, Harry Manfredini, who's best known for the Friday the 13th movies, he was the first interview I did. And um, I ended up, you know, by the time I was finishing the book, like I, two years had passed. So I interviewed him again uh, just to, cause by then he was working on the video game. Uh, so I, I mean, mm -hmm. I did updates on some of the ones that I, some of the early ones Carpenter was another one that I interviewed once for about a half an hour for, for about an hour. And then in, during that interview, he, I was like, do you ever think about doing an album of non soundtrack music? And he's like, no, no, no. <laughs> and, the, and then by the time Three albums later, <laughs> and then by the time the book, by the time I was finishing the book, he had an album. So, um, I interviewed him again about that. Uh, but most of them like Charlie Clouser, for instance, who's in the second book, who's best known for the Saw movies. <laughs> he and I sat on zoom or Skype for four and a half hours. And, and just talked uh, wow. straight. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> uh, one, one conversation, it was literally like four to four and a half hours. And we just, we did it in that. And I ended up cutting it down um, quite a bit. Uh, not because, let me just because like how long can, can the book be? It was more for time than anything else. <laughs> right. Um, so there's like a handful. And some of, the, some of them, especially when there's a language barrier, were done via email. Um, mm -hmm. like the Japanese composers in the second book and Fabio Fritzi in the first book. So it was an interesting experience because not only are they all different and the way they approach things kind of unique, but, uh, how I had to go about interviewing everybody was pretty, uh, unique to everybody as well. So, um, I think the books, I think the reason why I ended up calling it conversations with some of Har's greatest composers is because I feel like for the most part that that's how they read, that's how they turned out less yeah. interviews and, and more conversation. I actually think the second book even more so um, because by the second book I had done it already. And uh, I also, by that point was friends with a number of the composers from the first book. And I got a lot of the composers for the second book through those friendships. And I just think that my, the way I approached it and the way I felt about it in a subconscious way was very different. Like I was less of a, fan going into the second book and i think i felt more comfortable and more like a peer in a weird in a weird way when i did the second book so in some ways i feel like the second book is even better than the first book because i think i was better i was a better interviewer by the second book mm -hmm. but uh yeah i i'm you know like I, I spent a lot of time on both of them um and uh i'm extremely proud of how they came out um but you know, I've always thought of the books as not being really mine, but being ours, you know, with the composers. They yeah. were, you know, obviously there was such a 
they're the bulk of it, you know, like, you know, maybe I, <laughs> maybe I, I talk for like, you know, 5%, 10% of, of what's actually in the book. And it's these people who are incredibly generous with their time. Um, in some cases, brutally honest. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, it was, it was a great experience and it's why I keep doing it. You know, it's somebody who I was talking to somebody yesterday and they were asking me about it and, I said, like, you know, I, I kind of keep doing it because it's I still find it really interesting. <laughs> and uh, and that's why I'm doing the movie, too. Like, I think it's a topic that's fascinating. I think it's a topic that is underappreciated, even for a yeah. lot of horror fans. And uh, and I think and I think the people that do it are underappreciated. And so when I started doing the first book, I realized that, you know, yes, the 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 genesis of the books was like there was information i wanted to know and that's why i did it there wasn't this book didn't exist and i wanted to read this book so i decided to do it myself but i realized as i was doing it that it was kind of important to promote and celebrate the people who do this work that i love um and the work itself but it became really important to me to you know be able to for people who aren't diehard horror music fans to be able to put a name and even a face to the work that they, they've been listening to uh, forever. And, yeah, I think you can really see the enthusiasm even in, in uh, the, the written conversations because you think of it all the time. When a movie comes out, they want to talk to the actors. They want to talk to the director. And then the composer maybe gets a very short interview or a couple of full quotes. So for them to get time to really express themselves, I imagine that had to be exciting on their end. Yeah, I I think it was. I mean, everybody has a different temperament of, you know, some people are very talkative and some people aren't. And but I think they were all enthusiastic and supportive of the of the books um, because I think they appreciated what I was trying to do. And especially when we did the interviews, I think they realized like really what I was trying to do. And, you know, many of them have told me that the the interviews they did for my books or either their favorite in the favorite interview they've ever done or they you know they've said oh you asked me things that nobody's ever asked me before and uh, so i mean obviously those things are, are amazing and flattering but i think when they realized that i what i was really trying to do um a lot of them opened up even more because i think they saw the opportunity um not just to celebrate the art form and the craft and everything but um, to to be to have a platform to tell their stories and and explain their craft and and I think the books especially um, can be very educational for people that want to do film scoring or music uh, composing in general because a lot of it is about um, process and how they approach it and um, yeah the books are were I was fascinating and interesting to do and you know I think the books are great but they're not I I, I emphasize they're not so they're not as much great because of me. They're great because of the people <laughs> I, I was able to get involved and the, and the time and openness they were, they were willing to lend to the project. I was very lucky. Well, that's, what, that's what makes oh, it. Go ahead, Jimmy. I'm sorry. That's oh, what sorry. Makes it, keep cutting you off. <laughs> that's what makes it so tragic that so many film composers are limited to just, you know, you know, a 15 second blurb on an old DVD featurette here and there, or the occasional like short interview. Cause so many of these guys have fascinating backstories outside of even their composing career. 
I, we hear so many Hollywood stories that are often very like A to B to C, but the road that leads to someone composing film mu- music, specifically composing horror film music, will often be like really twisted. <laughs> you know, some of them, <laughs> you know, a lot of them. Uh, I think you know, talking to Harry Manfredini about you know being known for it, and he, he's he's like you know, like you kind of you grow where you're planted, you know. Like he, some of the guys of his generation, the people who kind of got their career started in the '70s and '80s, their goal was never really to score horror movies. It's just they they took a job and uh, that job had success, and they got kind of you know, pigeonholed into it. Um, in contrast of younger people like um, Joseph Bashara and uh, Holly Amber Church and even Nathan Barr, who does a lot of different kinds of stuff, and Bear McCreary, who does all kinds of stuff. But they have an appreciation for horror that I feel like a lot of the composers of the 70s and 80s didn't have when they started. I think they developed an appreciation for the genre and what how music works within that genre. But because they didn't grow up in a time when horror was and horror music was so big, you know, um, it's, a, it's the more contemporary generations that, um, I think have a, are more excited about doing it, but yeah, they all have interesting, fascinating stories. I mean, at the end of the day, like everybody's story is kind of interesting. Um, and it's just a matter of, you know, ha- giving people a platform to tell it in a way that kind of emphasizes how interesting it is. Uh, but when it comes to film music, yeah, it's unfortunate. I forget who I was talking to. It was, I think, one of the interviews. Maybe it was when I was talking to Richard Band, and he was saying that at some point there was some kind of lawsuit in France, and it, it was had to be decided, like, who are the true creative minds, like the f- true creative people of who makes a film. I don't know what the lawsuit was and all that, but it was, according to him, it was decided that the three creators of a film are the writer, the director, and the composer. And I, I think it's true because I think music, you know, obviously it's, it's, it's underappreciated because when it's done right, it's truly invisible and not always noticeable, but it does so much for a film and the, and in most cases, it's the only part of the film that, like, a, a, the director can't really do themselves or understand. Uh, so it, it's a it, they need it. They need us somebody to come in and do it. And a lot of what we talk about in the books is that relationship because you know John Carpenter is kind of an anomaly. But for the most part, like a director doesn't know anything about you know composing music. So it's mm-hmm. something that they really have to rely. On a on a on another person to do, whereas a lot of filmmakers, especially ones that came out of the film school generation, like they could shoot the movie if they need to, or they could light a scene if they wanted to, and they could write a movie. But some of, but most of them would have no idea where to start when it came to scoring the movie. So it's it's an incredibly important role for the person, and it's also unique in the terms of in terms of music because. You know, when we think of popular music and songwriting, you know, so much of that kind of stuff is self-expression, you know, whether they're either writing it or they're uh, or if the writer performers. But in in the case of a movie or a play, when you're you have to put music on 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 something that somebody else created for dramatic purposes, it's I think it's a really unique relationship for a composer because. 
they're not doing it for themselves. They they actually have to do it for somebody else. And what right, they right. do is is in service to not just the filmmaker and the writer, but the the movie itself. And so there's an interesting balance of like satisfying themselves with the work, but also doing it for no other reason but to, <laughs> for somebody else. So it's a, it's all really interesting stuff that. I've come to really appreciate even more through this almost decade now of, of interviewing composers and learning about it. Well, I remember in your interview in part two of Disaster Piece, there, there's a whole bunch of mentions of the fact that the temp track really kind of guided the entire score for It Follows, which is fascinating because you hear that score and you think, oh, wow, there's not a lot else like this necessarily. And you realize, like, oh, <laughs> it's actually kind of being fashioned around some of his previous work, some, uh, some of the other works that the director enjoyed. <laughs> It wasn't necessarily all, you know, something he just brought out of his head out of the blue. It was very, very much guided. Yeah, well, that's a perfect that's a perfect example of the variety of point of views that you get from these composers that um, are really evident in the book. Because when you have I'm going to call them the older generation, but they're the, they're the older generation of the people interviewed for the book. Uh, most of them can't stand the temps attempt score attempt track they don't want to hear it at all if they have to hear it they only want to hear it once but you get someone like disaster piece who's coming from a differently a totally different direction a totally different part of film music i mean music in general coming to coming to film music from a totally unique uh other kind of music compared to everybody else and for him it was a very useful tool and even charlie clauser um, it was kind of in the middle generation wise of, of the people I've interviewed. He, he's pretty open to it and he finds it to be useful too. Maybe not as much of a template as disaster piece kind of found it to be, but you know, he's someone who's, you know, has said like, yeah, if like, if you have an eye, if the filmmaker has an idea of what they want it to be like, yeah, I want, if that's how they can tell me how they want it to be, like, I'm all for it. Like, i <laughs> You know, I'll, I'll do my best to figure out what it is. And, and not all of them have to deal with it, especially nowadays, but some of them loathe it. And, uh, <laughs> and some of them, it's like some of them, I don't even want to talk to them about it because I know it's like slowly I turn step by Ooh. step. <laughs> and, but it, like, I won't even ask about it. And some of them will bring it up. Let me tell you, before we move on to the next question, let me tell you about the temp tracks. And I was like, okay. <laughs> um, so some of them really hate it, but some of them, you know, that's the kind of the beauty of it, I think. And when you see them all compiled in collections like the books are, I think it, I find it fascinating, obviously, how differently they approach it, but also how similarly some of them approach it um, that you don't really get to see when you just read, you know, one, a short interview in a, in a magazine or yeah. see an interview on a on a special feature or something. When you get to sit there and just read all of them and even if you don't need to do it in order. I think it's interesting when you start seeing kind of the differences and the similarities between them. Well, for me, it's great kind of getting those nitty gritty details because well, I, I played a tuba in high school for a couple of years. I'm not much of a musician. I don't really know what's going on for film production scores. Uh, but as an avid film fan, you see articles all the time that kind of just pretend to know what's going on or pretend you know what's going on. I remember seeing an article a few years back claiming that temp scores were ruining all the music in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And not knowing anything about temp music myself at the time, you just kind of read that and go, oh, wow, I can't believe that's destroying the scores. And 
I'm sure if you talk to composers, they'd be like, here's like 40 reasons why that is just a gross oversimplification. So it's yeah. very fun in the interviews to get that kind of stuff in those details. Yeah, the way and I think Jay Chataway's interview in the first book, I think we talked specifically about that. And his his kind of point of view was, you know, when you get to something like the Marvel movies, for instance, and they start temping, everybody starts temping with the same stuff, then just automatically the all the scores are end up going to feel similar because if they're all you know if all the composers are listening to the same temp scores or the same cues <laughs> in each temp score yeah. i remember when the first book came out i did an interview um for a podcast and i want to say it was the one i did with larry fezzedin um he kind of came on as well because he wrote the forward for the first book so he kind of did a a podcast uh as a as a co-guest with me for the first book and uh, i don't know if it was on the podcast or before we started rolling he was telling me how he was involved with some film festival so he was watching you know all the films that were applying to be in the film festival and when they when filmmakers do that they often the films aren't finished and so he's just like if i hear another you know if i watch another horror movie with temp scores from it follows you know like <laughs> so Claire de Lune slept in there or something you know is like everybody whatever's popular at the time you know everybody starts kind of temping with that i guess and it, it can it can i guess lead to um, what most people would consider kind of a, a lack of originality but uh, that's the theory behind it i don't know how much i agree with it but i think that's the point of view for for that argument yeah <laughs> Man, uh, get a little sidetracked here. Larry Fessenden just seems like I, I, so cool. Like everything I've seen from him, all the interviews, podcasts, just seems like a super cool guy. So please don't tell me if he's a monster behind the scenes. I don't want to. I don't want that to ruin my illusion of him. Who? Uh, Larry Fessenden. No, no, he's great. You know, I've <laughs> he not, seems like I've, the coolest. I've got nothing but uh, appreciation for his support for the first book, and I mean, I've only met him in person once or twice. Um, but he's another instance where I was scrambling to find somebody to write the, a forward for the first book. And um, just like nobody was getting back to me. Yeah. And uh, I emailed him at some point just to be like, I was just emailing out anybody I would <laughs> want. I would love to have write a forward to it. You know, like I remember when I did the first book, my publisher's like, do you know anybody that can write it? I said, no. He's like, well, you're not going to get, I was like, I was just going to start emailing people and asking. He's like, well, if you don't know them, they're not going to do it. I was like, yeah, but if I had that mentality, the books never would have gotten written. You know, like, <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, like I just emailed composers out of the blue and I said, this is what I'm doing. You want to participate? Uh, so I was looking for people to write the forward and nobody did. And, uh, and I never heard back from Larry either, but then like the day before the manuscript was due, I got an email from Larry saying, I don't know how I missed your email. I apologize. I'm happy to do it. When do you need it? And I, and I emailed my publisher and I was like, so I got back to him. And it was like a Friday. He's like, I need it Monday. He's like, okay, I'll email it to you on Monday. No um, pressure though. Yeah. So that is great. <laughs> so on, on the first book, I'm looking at it right now. There's a Joe Bob Briggs, like little kind of pull quote on the front. Was that a similar situation where you just kind of emailed him or did you know him from something before? I had, uh, you know, I'm very honored to say that I got that before the last drive-in. So it's before the resurgence of Joe Bob. Um, I did a, I worked for a bit on special features for DVDs before the Blu-ray thing, before Shout Fa uh, Scream Factory and all that. There was a company in LA 
um, I think called Automat Pictures, and they would hire a friend of mine to do interviews for uh, to produce DVD extra features uh, when when the people that needed to be interviewed were in New York. And so my friend Stephen would often hire me to come on set, kind of be a PA. But what it turned out was when it was a subject matter that he thought I would be knowledgeable about and he wasn't, he would hire me to come and be the PA, but he would interview me before, (laughs) like as we were setting everything up before the person would come in. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. Um, and uh we were doing an interview for the first DVD release of the remake of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And uh we spoke to an expert on Ed Gain and Joe Bob came in and um he he emailed me like on Friday, he's like, We're interviewing Joe Bob on Monday. Do you want to come and do it with me? And I said, Yeah, sure. And he's like, Joe Bob has a book out called Profoundly Disturbing. Can you get a copy and read it for Monday? Because I don't have time. I was like, okay. So I got Joe Bob's book. I read it. And uh, so my Monday ended up, my job Monday ended up being like, just like babysitting Joe Bob Briggs for like an afternoon. (laughs) Uh, Because they were also going to shoot something else for a sizzle because they were trying to sell a TV show based on profoundly disturbing. So they made a deal where they would shoot the interview, but then they would shoot something else for him. So there was a lot of like in between setups and stuff. And so like my job was just kind of like keep Joe Bob company and, uh, you know, give, get him stuff if he needed it, if he wanted it and, <laughs> uh, just kind of like chat with them to keep him busy. Uh, I think so, a lot of fans would give like their left leg for that opportunity. Yeah, this yeah, sounds like I the was, best job. I was a, I was a huge monster vision fan. So uh, by that point, monster vision was off the air, but uh, I remember getting in the elevator with him and being like, so do I call you John or Joe Bob? You can call me John. And, uh, and he was totally not Joe Bob until he put on his bolo tie and sat in the chair. And then all of a sudden Joe Bob appeared. It was, it was, ma- it was kind <laughs> like of mad. Yeah. Magic trick. It was magical. Uh, so when I did the book, I had his email address from that experience. Um, and, uh, and I just emailed him and I said, Hey, I did the, you know, we did this 10 years ago or whatever. It was was a long time. (laughs) Uh, I said, I know you don't remember it, but, um, I'm writing a book. I was wondering if you would write a blurb for it because he's an author and a writer. And, um, he got back to me and said, sure. So I, I sent him kind of a PDF of where the book was at at the time, and uh, he was nice enough to uh, write up a blurb. Oh, that's great. Small aside, I like to brag about this every time I can. Uh, going back to Ed Gein, so I'm in Wisconsin, and uh, my grandfather actually took crime scene photos at the Ed Gein house like <laughs> when he was arrested. So <laughs> it was our family heirloom for a long time. We had negatives of like the, the hearts on the, the boiler, you know, on the stove, and meat hooks in the garage, and just the entire place. Well, that was when we when I sat and we they interviewed this this expert on Ed Gain for like two and a half hours. The guy was a real trooper and mm-hmm. fascinating. And um, it, we would get a hotel room in New York City to do these things, and uh, they would they would kind of just pay for the room for the app. They found a place in a nice hotel, and because it's New York, I guess they're used to this kind of thing where you could rent it for <laughs> like the day, but not the night. Oh, and okay. uh, it wasn't like a you know a, a seedy motel where he buy pay by the hour, but it was like they're like they knew that that's what we were doing, so they would put us in like a wing of the hotel where there wasn't a lot of guests, so it would be quiet. But so yeah. I would just sit and like off to the side and during these interviews, and I just and listen to the interviews because I wasn't conducting. Um, mm-hmm. 
And my the most fascinating part about that Ed Gain interview was the guy talking about how when the cops and everybody went in to to get him, it was night and and Ed Gain didn't have electricity. So they were really going through the house and the barn and stuff with like flashlights. <laughs> and and the most stereotypical setup possible for a horror film. <laughs> and discovering these these atrocities and like, you know, skull thing you know in the skull bowls that he made and yeah all this crazy stuff and then belts like, made in nipples and it was just no oh, it was as gruesome as you'd imagine and so i i'm not the biggest fan of the remake of uh texas chainsaw massacre but i do love that they try to capture like that aspect of it with like the kind of newsreel like the cop footage yeah yeah that kind of bookends the movie because that was the thing i thought was like the creepiest part of the whole story when the guy was telling it was that like these cops and everybody and i guess you know your relative took these pictures they all went in at night <laughs> without any light and which had and had to kind of investigate in the dark which is, just sounds like the creepiest thing ever right <laughs> he, he passed before i got to know him at all so i never got to ask questions about that but yeah, he was he was just a newspaper reporter on the scene. They got a call like, "Hey, we need pictures." <laughs> so he got called in, take crime scene photos, and I had no idea what he's in for. So <laughs> yeah, I can't I even imagine. And none of them did. Anyone, right? Yeah, just to just imagine like that in real life. Oh my god! Uh, thankfully, you still have his beloved lamp. Unrelated. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's still as pearly white as the day he gave it to me. <laughs> So uh, I, I can't get my head out of the uh, disaster piece section of the book because I reread that last night just to get up for it. And I, I absolutely love his music from Hyperlight Drifter. So I was really excited when, you know, all the It Follows stuff was out there. Um, well, he was, you know, the, he It Follows came out when I was in the last leg of the first book. Yeah. And I didn't know who he was. I'm not a video game guy. And, you know, you, you just see the name disaster piece on a credit. and. <laughs> I didn't know who it was. Uh, I remember walking out of the movie theater on 42nd Street in New York City and walking home to my apartment and thinking, like, I'm kind of done the book, but I haven't handed it in yet. Should I try to reach out to this person, this band, like whoever this disaster piece is? I don't know if it's a man, it's a woman, if it's a collective of people. Yeah. And I, and I was like, should I try to reach out to them? Because the score... Uh, just like, obviously it became such a big thing, but just like on my first viewing, it was like, wow, like maybe I should, try, I should try to talk to this person. And ultimately I ended up deciding that like, it just wasn't feasible. The book was going to be due too soon. And, um, it's just like, I just, it wasn't It was just, it wasn't going to work out. I just realized it just wasn't going to happen, but that was definitely like my first, my immediate reaction was like, I think I might need to put this person in this book or whoever it is. Um, but I, I didn't end up reaching out to the, to him, but, um, but I really wanted to, and uh, it just didn't seem possible. Didn't. And it was like, he'd only done one th kind of horror movie at that point. And right. How do you make t 20 pages of interview out of this yeah, one genre project? Uh, I, I ended up being able to kind of figure out how to do that, but it took a couple of years. Uh, so when I had the opportunity to do the second book, the second book, there's a long kind of convoluted story about how the second book came out, uh, came about. But what I will say is that the second book, the half of the interviews of the second book um, are originated as part of Scored to Death, the podcast, which I kind of did be between the two books. 
Mm-hmm. And um, the reason why I did that was because uh, basically, like, I wasn't going to make as much money on the second book as I was in the first book. And so I didn't want to put as much work <laughs> into it. <laughs> so, gotcha, gotcha. But I said, like, hey, like, I have this collection of fantastic interviews that I did for podcast for the podcasts. So I asked my publisher, can I use them? And they said, sure. So half the book, the second book, originated as podcast episodes that I then did some follow-up interviews for to have kind of unique information that was specific to the book. Mm-hmm. But then it became like, okay, so if, ha- you know, this many pod- this many interviews kind of already exist, I've already done most of that work, but who else do I want to put in it? And so, you know, Disaster Piece was one of the you know, if not the first, there's certainly one of the very first people that popped in mind for me to do, to to reach out to for the second book because of how I felt seeing the movie when I was doing the first book. And I love that interview because, you know, because his body of work is, especially at that point, was so much smaller than a lot of other people's. Um, Michael Abel's is the same way in the second book uh, that, I got to explore like one or two scores in a much more in-depth way than I did with a lot of the other composers. Um, oh yeah. So they have a very different vibe, you know, the talking about like get out uh, with Michael Abels and, and it follows with um, disaster beast. It's almost like, it's almost like a track or cue by cue like discussion about like each <laughs> each piece of music in it, which was fascinating to do. And it, and it oh, ended yeah. up being like, there's, they feel so much different than the other interviews. Um, and that's what great. I love. There's a moment in there where you get to specifically talk about just like title, you know, where that goes and where it came from and why it plays so late in the movie. So I love that, you know, just really super laser focused on one track. That's fantastic when you can get that. Yeah. Yeah. It, you know, that was you know that all that stuff was kind of obviously not by design for the for the <laughs> books those are the things that just kind of happened and by making the the conversations um it allowed each of the interviews to have its own energy its own rhythm its own focus in a lot of ways and i think that's one of the things that really works about the books is not just the people that are in them but that each interview has its own kind of life, you know, like with Bear McCreary in the second book, I only had Bear for an hour. It was a strict hour. I was told not to go over it by his publicist. And I I don't even think we talk about any specific movie in it. I think we just talk about kind of like writing music for movies um, and his uh, relationship with you know, mentors and stuff. And, but bear is a rare occasion where like bear has a blog where he writes about everything himself. He writes about like almost every project. So the way I, I felt comfortable with it, because I felt like bears kind of already done that, like for every project. So I don't, I didn't feel bad about like not being able to talk to him about, you know, some of the specific movies and, and scores that I, that I love of his, um, because I feel like he's very vocal online about all that stuff. So all that information is out there. So what I will do is I will try to focus on all the stuff that all those other inter- interviews and all his blog posts don't focus on. So then mm-hmm. it can kind of be a nice complement to all the other information that already exists. So and those were, 
just all things that ended up coming out of just doing them. Um, but yeah, the disaster piece interview, I, I kind of love for that reason, because its focus is so different than the majority of the other interviews in the book. Right. Well, and there, there are two things that caught me with it. One was the fact that everyone goes, oh, it's just kind of Carpenter throwback retro music, which I'm sure I probably said at one point, too, when I wasn't thinking about it. And then you realize, like, well, he's using a synthesizer, but that's kind of where the similarities end between his music and a lot of the other stuff out there that's being compared to or even inspired. Yeah. Yeah, it's and really so. not, which is what's amazing. And I didn't because like that was my inclination, too, until I went back and I listened to the score and I rewatched the movie for the interview. And I realized, like, no, this really isn't like a John Carpenter ripoff, you know? No, and, not at all. It's and just so, the music, like the, the instrument, I guess. Yeah, it's the instrument. But I also, you know, something we talked about, I think, in the interviews, I brought it up. I said, like, I think where some of that comparison comes from is the way the filmmakers decide to use the music. Also, I think, is part of why people associate it with John Carpenter. Like, it's not the music itself, but it's the way, it's the role that the music plays within the movie and the narrative that I think is also kind of reminiscent to what we think of with John Carpenter. And that was kind of a, an interesting revelation and an interesting thing to talk to him about, because I think, you know, obviously as the guy that did it, he doesn't see it as like a, you know, a very John well, Carpenter-esque score. And it's really yeah. not when you listen to it, the sounds that he uses are very different. And even his approach oh, yeah. to, to the sound of the music is very different than what John Carpenter does. But I think in the context of the movie and how the music is used, I see even more so why people make those connections. Right. And he wasn't even a, a huge genre fan, I believe, in, in the conversation. He kind of mentions he was aware of things like The Shining, but he wasn't well versed in them. He wouldn't yeah. call himself a horror fanboy. So that's, I think, a whole different area of approach as well when you're not kind of mired in horror skill or score tradition. Yeah, he was familiar with the band Goblin, but not because of like their <laughs> not because of their horror movies. It was just like through the you know, the community, the online community of music, of musicians and, and like bit music composers and stuff that he discovered them completely f away from Dario Argento and stuff and just discovered the music on its own. But yeah, he was not uh, a huge horror guy and, and therefore not a big, not totally familiar with, you know, the conventions of horror scores. And the other thing that I, I, I took away from that interview was, uh, yeah, when I saw It Follows, the score was so impressive, impressive to me. It was one of those deals where I knew immediately, like, even if the movie is garbage, I hate the rest of the film from this point of this thought. I still need to get my hands on the score. The score is so good, it validates the entire movie existing. <laughs> and I, I'm having a hard time thinking of other movies where that happened, where you just listen to the score and go, wow, this is independent and amazing by itself. It's, it's a blessing this exists, even if the rest of the movie is complete garbage. Yeah, in some ways, I mean, obviously the movie made a big splash, especially at the time. But oh, yeah. in a way, like the score surpassed the popularity of the movie <laughs> yeah, pretty instantly. It was kind. Of, it, was, it was definitely a weird kind of phenomenon with that score. Yeah, and I, I like the movie too, but yeah, that score really just blew me away. In a, in a slightly related vein would be Carpenter returning for the Halloween score. Like even if I knew walking into the theater, I didn't like Halloween 2018, we're getting new Carpenter music. So I was really excited for that part and the score absolutely knocked me over. So that, that was a, joy that i happen to like the movie and the score yeah yeah i'm not as in love with the uh the new halloween movies as everybody else but i do love the scores <laughs> well that's what i'm talking about even if you don't care for the film at least we got the music and, and in some cases whew, that's enough for me yeah and it's also you know somebody commented on a tweet 
that I has did yesterday. Um, I actually liked kills and ends just fine. I was not a fan of 2008's uh, Halloween, but um, the somebody commented like, "Will somebody tell me what it is that Cody and Daniel Davies are doing?" Because I don't hear it. Like, and um, I think that's the beauty of that of the, at least the first one because that's the one I'm most familiar with because I, mm-hmm. I haven't really listened to ends yet by itself um, because I think it just came out uh, by itself and the movie obviously just came out. But like yeah, I, I think lo- you can get like, on Spotify like right now, but I, I think that's pretty much now. Like I think like and especially when you get familiar with the Lost Themes albums that they did together, and I've interviewed Cody a few times. Um, I've become friendly with Cody. And so getting to know Cody's music and Daniel's music kind of separate from the Carpenter related stuff, like I you really can hear like their influence on the scores too. And I think that's also is a huge plus for those scores. John Carpenter was always what we think of as the John Carpenter sound was always a hybrid of him and whoever he was working with at the time. He always had collaborators. Mm-hmm. Dan Wyman uh, with the first few scores like Halloween and Assault on Precinct 13 and then Alan Howarth throughout the 80s and then um, Shirley Walker and, and uh, Jim Lang. Uh, you know, obviously Carpenter's the director, so his influence on the music is kind of paramount. But what we think of as John Carpenter music has always really been a very harmonious hybrid with whoever he's working with at the time. And I think one of the great things about the new Halloween scores is the fact that Cody and Daniel Davies are uh, his son, Cody Carpenter and Daniel Davies are collaborating with him because I think it's making them uh, it's giving them a voice that uh, I think is really unique to his other stuff, but because they're playing like in the playground of music that John Carpenter built and working off of themes that he created, like it's awesome. It's still at the same time. So John Carpenter esque, but uh, (laughs) yeah, Cody, Cody Carpenter's music is so in the same vein of his father's, but so very, very distinct. It's so much more of a, a bigger, more fantasy sound to it. Like those lost, uh, lost themes albums are very Cody Carpenter when you can yeah. learn to hear the difference. Yeah. Well, he's a extremely talented piano player, keyboard player. So when you hear a cue on the first Halloween, the 2018, uh, album, I think it's called like the shape hunts Allison or something like that. And it's, it's just like this repeating, um, arpeggio of, keyboards but it's like it's so cody like john would never be able to play that let alone write that <laughs> you know <laughs> so it, it's like that cue is amazing but it's got cody carpenter written all over it and then you get like these bowed guitar sounds yeah that are, that are very daniel and those scores are great because it's the three of them i mean john i'm sure john would have delivered uh, you know very awesome scores and we all would have you know been chomping at the bit to hear them but i think what makes those scores special is that he's working with those that those two guys that he's obviously extremely close to because one of his son and daniel is like his godson or a a very close part of the family as well those scores are great um but that's the beauty of music you know you know so many of the composers that i've talked to um you know they do work alone but it's the collab but even then it's a collaboration with the filmmakers you know uh, but do you do get instances with like Goblin, for instance, which is a band that's creating music? Uh, those dynamics when it comes to music are always 
really interesting. As a, I'm a musician as well, so like those kind of mus- those kind of dynamics are always really fascinating to me, and how they're able to do that in in the realm of film music is also really interesting. I'm really curious what the the next kind of trend would be because right now it feels like everyone either wants to get John Carpenter for their movie or make a John Carpenter type sound. Mm-hmm. So what's it going to be next after people move on? They don't necessarily want something that's synth heavy or some sort of imitation carpenter. It's really going to be. You have the answer. I'm just throwing that out. Yeah. <laughs> Predict the future. Yeah. Well, <laughs> nostalgia is big, you know, and I think part but, of that, part of that's coming. The nostalgia for the eighties has lasted way longer than it should have. Um, mm-hmm. And I say that because like all that comes from the people that were young in the eighties are now in the, the position to create things now. And you saw that in the late seventies and the early eighties with guys like John Carpenter and George Romero and even Gary Marshall, you know, like happy days and like Greece existed because oh, yeah. of nostalgia and, you know, George Lucas with uh, American graffiti. But then in the eighties, we started to get like creep show, which was a total homage to, to, you know, EC comics, which were what George Romero, oh, George Romero and Stephen King grew up with. But then we saw all these remakes of, John Carpenter's The Thing, that was a remake. And Invasion of the Body Snatchers, 1978, a remake of a 50s sci-fi movie. The Fly by Cronenberg was a remake of a, The Blob in the 80s. So like, it was the, these guys who were all nostalgic for the 50s. So we should really be, at, by this point, firmly planted in 90s nostalgia. <laughs> but I was thinking uh, the other day, yeah. There. Well, we're kind of getting it. We got a, a Scream legacy sequel I don't know what the, the correct term for that is, where it's kind of a remake, kind of the same thing again. I mean, are you afraid of the dark is back? We can count that. Huh? It's getting there. It's starting, but it should have started like 10 years ago. Oh, yeah. We don't have anything on the level of Stranger Things for, <laughs> for pure nostalgia hit. Uh, so I think part of the Carpenter thing is is that. You know, I think that's part of it. Um, synthesizers in filmmaking have always been for the most part, a budgetary decision. And that's why right. so many horror movies used them in the in the late 70s and especially in the 80s because there just wasn't money in the budget for anything bigger. Some people got away with it, like Richard Band ended up doing a totally gorgeous score for House on Sorority Row, which is a pretty standard, not standard, pretty, you know, but typical slasher movie. A good one, but yeah. very much of, of its ilk. But he ends up delivering this like gorgeous, lush orchestral score for it, which was very atypical. But, you know, even Harry Manfredini was, especially with the first two uh, Friday the 13th, they were, there was live, you know, orchestral instruments, even though the, the ensembles weren't as big as a full orchestra. Uh, and the sad fact is that right now, film music, music budgets are shrinking. Right. And the only scores that can really afford to have live players and orchestras and stuff are the bigger studio pictures like the Marvel movies and even like the Conjuring movies, which are, I think, Warner Brothers films, even though they're kind of produced by, you know, Blumhouse or smaller companies, they're still studio pictures. So unfortunately, the budgets aren't there. So the plus side is technology has gotten better in, in music that synthetic orchestras can sound pretty good now and in the right hands can not be really even detectable by this by most viewers and listeners but i think part of the synth stuff is it's it's nostalgia but it's always going to be budget budgetary as well and um so i don't i don't know 
if it'll change anytime soon. I mean, hopefully we'll get away from the Carpenter-esque stuff and mm-hmm. things will find their own voice, whatever's next for film music. But for horror that isn't, you know, big studio horror, which even the big studio horror isn't that big, I, I don't foresee like a huge change in terms of go moving back to orchestra. Joseph Bashar gets to do it, but that's because he's working on like the insidious and conjuring <laughs> movies and bear gets to do it for a lot of projects, bear McCreary. Um, but it doesn't, it's not as common as it used to be. And, and in a way it's sad because, you know, it would be nice to get that kind of stuff too. And hopefully we'll get back to that, but it's going to, it's going to cost money. And I just don't know if the money's there for <laughs> low budget horror movies. Yeah. Medium yeah. ones. <laughs> I'm sure we're going to have AI orchestras scaring the shit out of us in a couple of years. <laughs> yeah, you'll just be like horror genre. Three <laughs> three minutes. Yeah, yeah, the you just plug in three. Ah, I want spooky. Uh, make me shiver. And uh, take Black Cats and it'll just spit out yeah. a song for you. And it'll, it'll, it'll take one minute to scan the scene <laughs> and then put like the jump scare in the right place for you. And it'll all work out. Hey, this is just the su- the Shining score again. Yes. <laughs> It'd probably be great for Mickey Mousing, though. Come on. So for, for Harry Manfredini, was he relieved when uh, you had questions for scores that weren't Friday the 13th? I imagine that poor man has had to have talked about those movies more times than he's ever wanted to in his entire life. Well, let's put it this way. When I emailed Harry to do the first book, I originally thought, in a quick aside, I... When I did the first book, I was like, I wasn't sure I was the right guy to do that book. The few Hmm. books I had read of interviews with film music composers were a little bit music theory heavy. And I wasn't sure like I could do that. um, So I I made a decision that I would do like two interviews and see how they turned out. And if I thought they were good enough, I would continue uh, with the book. And if they weren't good enough, then I would edit them down and and give them to, you know, like Fangoria or Dread Central or someplace to post them as their own things. Yeah. It, so to do that, I, I assuming that most people would say no, I reached out to like seven or eight composers thinking that maybe I'd get two to say yes, but eight, but all of them said yes. <laughs> You're doing so, the book whether you want to or not. Yeah, so it became pretty clear that that, that the book was happening. Um, at least, you know, I don't know. It wasn't clear that it would get published, but it was clear that I was going to be doing one. And I emailed Harry, and he was the first interview I did, so I hadn't I hadn't really done any yet. So he asked me, how long do you need? Like, how much time? And I said, I don't know, 45 minutes? That seemed like a good number to me, you know, 45 minutes to an hour. Yeah. And uh, his response was, Oh, I'm going to talk a lot longer than that. So, uh, so I talked to Harry. He was in LA. So I talked to Harry, like I'm in New York. So I talked to him at like midnight. It was like nine his time. Yeah. And we talked for like two and a half hours and, uh, and, and thank God, because it set the pace of what the rest of the interviews were going to be. Like if I talked to Harry and we talked for 45 minutes, that's how long the rest of the interviews would have been. Mm-hmm. But because I talked for like two and a half hours with Harry and then the next day talked for like two hours with Alan Howarth, it was like, okay, like these are two, two hours is the benchmark of how long <laughs> these are going to be. Um, so Harry's a talker, happy to talk about stuff. Uh, I think, yes, probably more happy to not talk about Friday the 13th, but he understands that he kind of has to. And uh, what I did get to do with the 
that I'm get what I'm getting to do with the movie that I didn't really do too much in the book, and you can see it with the, the Bernard Herman video that I posted on social media, is that I get to talk to them about other people's music more than I did with the books. The books were really focused on them and their work yeah. and how they approach it and how they got to be composers and all that stuff. But to be able to sit down and be like, okay, because like really part of what I want to do with the movie is highlight some of the greatest scores in the genre. So to talk to Harry Manfredini about the Halloween score and about Bernard Herrmann and about Jerry Goldsmith and about, you know, the use of tubular bells and the exorcist to talk to these guys about those things. I think, yeah, I think they, I think they're happy to talk about, other people other than themselves as well, especially Jerry <laughs> Goldsmith, because in most film composers, especially of his generation, Charles Bernstein, Harry Manfredini, Chris Young, like Jerry Goldsmith was 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 their benchmark of, you know, like he's on Mount Rushmore of film scores composers for them. So for them to be able to talk about Jerry Goldsmith, it was you can tell they light up to talk about these guys. So yeah, that's uh but Harry's always willing to talk, uh, always willing to lend his support. I did a convention trying to sell the book in California. And uh, to get people to come to the table, I think Chris Chris Young came on Saturday and just sat and signed books with me. And then Harry came on Sundays, signed books with me. So, um, And they both, both those guys, I did a signing out there when the book came out. And five of the composers showed up for that. So they're all super amazing and supportive and uh, great to talking with their fans and stuff. Um, yeah, I mean, Harry's known for Friday the 13th, but he's done the house movies and those are fun yeah. to talk to him about. And, uh, you know, Swamp I mean, Thing. have a pretty good, yeah, those guys, I mean, the house movies have pretty good following. So it's, it's a little bit of a bummer they're overshadowed by, you know, some of the bigger things like Friday the 13th. That's Swamp Thing. Oh, Swamp Thing. <laughs> Uh, in that same vein, uh, we were talking a little bit about like a Diamond in the Rough scores earlier. Were there any lesser known composers you were able to interview in either book that you really enjoyed being able to shine a bigger spotlight on? Absolutely. I mean, it was really important for me to put Jay Chataway in the first book because I loved his score for Maniac, the Bill Lustig oh, 1980 yeah. film. Yeah. Um, when I was getting into horror movie scores in a really serious way in the late nineties, um, you know, John Carpenter was big for me. I was discovering the Italian horror stuff. So Goblin was getting very big for me in the late nineties and Fabio Frizzi. All this was the stuff that ended up leading to me doing the book in 2013 was being in film school and discovering all these movies and these scores. And at that point, Anchor Bay had put out Maniac on VHS because Bill Lustig was working with Anchor Bay. So to kind of like get the materials to re-release all these, like they were doing what like Scream Factor and Arrow and Arrow do now, but they were doing it on VHS and doing so the Lord's were, work. Yeah, they were releasing widescreen on VHS versions of Fulci movies and Mario Bava and all that stuff. So I saw Maniac and just instantly fell in love with that score and. um then learned that he did the score for Silver Bullet, which is a movie that, as an adult, oddly enough, has, has become one of my favorite movies of all time. Silver <laughs> Bullet is uh, very underrated. It's just, it's a, it's, I'm going to, it's weird. It's a beautiful movie about a kid and his uh, handicapped kid and his sister, you know, and his, on his crazy uncle. Like, I just, it's this beautiful love story about the, this, this, this family with a it's werewolf. It's like the Stephen King Spielberg movie. I love it. 
<laughs> somebody, uh, somebody once said, it's like to kill a mockingbird, but with werewolves. And I was like, yeah, <laughs> kind of. <laughs> and uh, so Jane Chataway was a big deal. And uh, for me in the first book, with the second book, um, I had the extreme honor of interviewing Robert Cobert, who uh, is not known to a lot of people now, but he wrote the music for the original Dark Shadows television series. Uh, he did the, he scored the first, the original TV movies of Kolchak, the Night Stalker, before it became a series. Oh, he did oh, trilogy. Wow. He scored trilogy, trilogy of Terror, which is probably one of the bigger things that people know now because of the, the, the little uh, doll and Karen Black segment of that movie. Um, he was nine. I think he was ninety-four when I interviewed him, and uh, sadly died in early two thousand two. Kind of, I mean, two thousand twenty, um, right before COVID uh, kind of hit, and uh, so he unfortunately passed away before the book was released. And um, it was amazing. Uh, and, you know, certainly did was not certainly like I was aware that it was important in a way that it, I didn't feel about the other ones because I was like, this guy, like, you know, I kind of felt like he might not be around by the time the book comes out. Like, this is like I, I need to preserve this guy's story in a weird like historical way. <laughs> like, there was there were, yeah, yeah, yeah. there were stakes to it. And I felt, you know, and getting the interview was kind of funny and weird. And he was such a funny guy. And we sat and we talked for like two hours on the phone because he didn't have Skype or anything like that. Mm -hmm. um, and we just laughed. And he took this walk down memory lane and thought about things that he clearly hadn't thought about in decades. Like he was telling me stories about being a teenager and playing in a jazz band in the Catskills, you know. <laughs> And like spending the summer trying to get laid. And it was, <laughs> he, he had like the mouth of a sailor and uh, was sharp as a tack. And he didn't want to do the interview at first. Um, and he came around and did it. And he ended up like having the best time. And we stayed friends after that. And I would call him. And then I called him like the following Christmas and or the Christmas of 2019. And I didn't hear back from him. And I was kind of worried. And then I found out that he died in February. Um, so, yeah, it was it was important to me to shine light on some of these composers and, and some of the music. Um, it was that was the best. And that came about where it's like I was just sitting at, at the time when I was working on the second book. My, the desk, I, my desk at that point was kind of like facing my blue, my Blu-rays and my DVDs. And I was trying to compile a list of who I wanted to talk to over the second book, who I was going to try to reach out to. And I just saw like burnt offerings on the, on the shelf, the Oliver Reed movie. And I was mm -hmm. like, who, who did the score for that? And I looked it up and I was like, okay, Robert Cobra, what else did he do? I was like, oh, Dark Shadows, Trilogy of Terror. I was like, I'm going to try to find that guy. Then I looked him up in line. I was like, oh, shit, he's in his 90s. <laughs> it's like, how am I going to find How am I going to find him? He's not going to be on social media. He's not going to have an agent at this point. But miraculously, I found him. A lot of hunting. Part of the, a big part of the book is kind of being a detective, honestly. And uh, trying to find people is, is a big part of doing it. And um, he was the best. So those, I mean, those are the two from the, from the, first and the second book that come immediately to mind of kind of like the diamonds and the rough composers that maybe not a lot of, a lot of people know by name 
but probably know the music, but aren't, but their music isn't, you know, as iconic as say like the Halloween score or something like that. Just just as a reader, those are always the best interviews to stumble onto because it's like I've seen Danny Elfman interviewed a thousand times, and we'll see him interviewed a thousand times more before he's gone. But God, to find an interview with the composer to the Night Stalker, it's like God, tell me those stories. Yeah, well, he's also working at a the bygone era of you know, film and television, you know, like he stopped scoring things in like the nineties. So he started scoring stuff in like the fifties. So it was a totally different, his outlook on it, how he did it, you know, it was totally different. So part of the goal for both books was diversity. Um, you know, with the second book, times had changed a little bit. And so things like racial, ethnic diversity, you know, gender diversity were were more of a factor with the second book than the first book. Because the first book, I was just trying to get whoever I could get and uh, just wanting to talk to the, the people who scored some of the greatest, you know, the most iconic film horror movie franchise of all time. And they were all white dudes um, because of, of various circumstances. But uh, in both books, diversity was a big thing. Stylistically, age, you know, all those things. I, I wanted to cast like wide nets of who was going to be interviewed so that, you know, we were covering, I was covering all kinds of different approaches and some were synth guys, some were rock guys that became film composers, some were classical guys. Some guys started in the seventies and eighties, other guys started in the nineties and two thousands. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I wanted to, I wanted to interview people who weren't, you know, like Holly Amber Church in the second book, it was important for me to get her um, not because she's a woman, but because she is contemporary. And at that point, now she's starting to her career starting to take off. But she had scored a ton of like lower ind independent type horror movies of today, of like the last 10 years. Mm -hmm. And um, in the in the way that Jeff Grace kind of like filled that slot for me in the first book with with scoring, you know, Ty West's movies, uh, earlier, earlier movies, like Holly Amber Church was like checking this box of like working on ultra low budget horror and not, you know, that's contemporary. Like the, all that stuff was really important. I mean, and, and a lot of it was strategic in that way. Like I want to talk to I want to talk to. Bear McCreary, who's, you know, scoring some of the biggest television shows and movies. But I also want to talk to Holly, who's who's grinding it out day to day on a smaller project. And now, <laughs> yeah, yeah. you know, and now finally, I think she she wrote the theme for Guillermo del Toro's Cabinet of Curiosities, which is coming oh, out on Netflix. Oh. So it's it's oh, also exciting. it's also great to it's nice to have this person who's become kind of a close friend of mine now and, and see that she's finally starting to her career is finally starting to pick up in in exciting ways Going back to gdt it's it's always amazing i don't know how musical he is as a person but i think all of his movies have had absolutely phenomenal scores even even kind of weird stuff like mimic had pretty good music considering <laughs> it's a giant bug movie yeah well he works with amazing composers you know marco Beltrami is um you know amazing um, and someone yeah. who I've tried desperately to get into the second book and, uh, it just didn't work out. We tried to line up our scheduling for over a year. And <laughs> oh, finally, no. I just had to say, like, I need to hand in the manuscript. I, you know, like, I can't wait any longer. 
Oh, uh, that's but, such a bummer. You know, but he keeps busy, you know, and um, he's just uh, Guillermo del Toro. One, his his movies are, uh, you know, especially the more you can tell, like the more personal ones like Devil's Backbone and um, Pan's Labyrinth and stuff. You know, like he's they're poetic in a way that I think lends itself to gorgeous music. And um, he is very talented at working, <laughs> at choosing really <laughs> wonderful composers to work with. And I, it's a beautiful hybrid of uh, image and story and music, his stuff for sure. Yeah, just yeah, remember the, oh, sorry, go ahead, Jimmy. I was just going to say, yeah, he's definitely probably the best director working today when it comes to integrating music into his films. Like they are very much a living, breathing, organic part of his movies that never feel like uh anything that was added in later like i even with something like the hellboy movies i could not imagine you know the first hellboy having any other theme it seems like something that sprang out of the movie naturally well he's such a you can tell when you when you hear him talk or even when you see read his tweets you can tell that he just loves cinema um passionately i mean all filmmakers do to a certain extent but you can tell that he's one that just loves it and uh so i think he approaches stuff in, in a lot of ways in a more classical sense you know like i think a lot of what he's trying to do is tell very classic stories in a very classic style of filmmaking and you know uh, you know, the film music had a very different role in the, you know, when sound came into play in the 30s and then the four, especially in the 40s into the 50s, these giant orchestras. And stuff. I think he just approaches film in, in that way. So I think he's more in tune with like the power of music in that kind of classical sense, because I think he's. He's really trying to like hearkening back to like a bygone era of cinema, even though his movies are clearly him, you know, like talk <laughs> right. about like talk about an auteur, but like, I think he's definitely got kind of more classic sensibilities and music just played a different role in cinema than, than it does in a lot of contemporary cinema. So I think that's why his music kind of stands out so, so much. Well, I remember, I believe this was an interview with uh, Bill Trauma where he's talking about working with Del Toro on Hellboy and just some of the ideas Del Toro would throw at him like, okay, this one, I want a tango for this scene when he's on the rooftop spying on his love because it should be kind of romantic and a little playful, which is something Trami, I believe, said he hadn't considered. Like, yeah, why would I put a tango in this monster movie? Or uh, there's another scene, an action scene where, you know, the monster is throwing Hellboy around and Del Toro told him, okay, now make it sound like an orchestra fell down an elevator. <laughs> yeah, well, I think even as like a young man, I'm not positive about this, but I think like he wrote like a book about Alfred Hitchcock and his movies like before he became a filmmaker. I mean, it was in Spanish. Oh, I tried to yeah, find a copy it. of it. Um, so, I mean, talk about, you know, a relationship between a director and a composer, Bernard Herrmann and Alfred Hitchcock. And Bernard Herrmann was uh, an outlier in his, you know, in his generation, you know, scoring things in ways that nobody would have imagined using, mm -hmm. you know, Psycho is nothing but strings kind of realizing before Bernard Herrmann, for the most part, obviously there might be exceptions that I, I'm not thinking of, but like, I feel like, and I think Chris Young talks about this in the first book, like before that, like composers were working with whatever, like the standard, you know, lineup of an orchestra was, and they were scoring it as if it could be performed 
in a classical concert, you know, somewhere. Yeah, yeah. Um, they were working in a they, – they, but Bernard Herdman came around and he was thinking, you know, like this is not going to be performed in like Central Park as part of a concert. Like this is for a, a movie. <laughs> like I, if I can have, you know, 40 flutes, then, you know, I, I, I'm going to use it if I think it's going to work. And um, so, I, you know, that's a, an instance where I think, you know, I think that's some of the stuff – that you're talking about these examples with like Guillermo del Toro and working with Mark Beltrami and using a tango and stuff. I mean, that's, you know, having a, it sound like an orchestra fell down a flight of stairs. Like that's to me, that kind of reeks of Bernard Herrmann, <laughs> the <laughs> kinds of things that he was doing on being unconventional um, with what he was doing, especially in the Hitchcock movies. And, and I think that's like, I think that just goes back to what I was saying. Like, I think Guillermo del Toro is just like approaching music how music works in movies in a way that some of his contemporaries aren't. Yeah. Before we wrap it up, we should one more time just impress everyone that Kickstarter goes until uh, November 1st, correct? It does. I mean, if we, I've talked to Kickstarter and if like we haven't reached our goal and maybe we're close, there's a possibility that we might be able to extend it by a little bit, but um, you know, I just don't know if that's going to happen. So uh, yeah, we're hoping that, um, we'll be able to reach our goal by November 1st, which is just at the time of recording, just about two weeks away. So we're running out of time. So no pressure folks, but uh, if you listen to this podcast and then don't immediately pledge your money, uh, you're a bad person. <laughs> just uh, how it works. So everyone make sure to go to Kickstarter right now. You're going to want to look up score to death movie and uh, plop your money down. You're going to appreciate it in the end. I'm very excited for it, too, so you're going to be letting me down if you don't put your money on this, because I want all the interviews possible. But, uh, Blake, this has been such a joy. Thank you so much for the time. I really loved having you on the show. Uh, where can people find you on Twitter? Uh, on or Twitter, Instagram. Whatever your preferred social medias are. At <laughs> uh, Scored to Death. Um, and uh, the books are available on Amazon. From book, other book retailers are from me directly at scoredtodeath.com. Or you can join the mailing lists at scoredtodeath.com to, uh, you know, stay up to date with what's going on with the movie. Or, uh, you know, I try to, especially during the Kickstarter, I've been trying to post videos and things like that to give everybody a sense of what, uh, hopefully, what the movie potentially can be. So you can go to at scoredtodeath on Twitter and Instagram and stuff and, and take a look at those videos so you can see what's what we're doing. Um, and I also do uh, a podcast called Score to Death Radio for the Cinematic Sound Radio Network, where um, I've been kind of branching out lately. But uh, for the most part, it's been like I play DJ for a day and I play horror movie cues. But uh, I just wrapped up a gigantic five-part kind of series <laughs> about the band Goblin, where I painstakingly go through the history of uh, their music. And uh, for Halloween season... Uh, I, I just did a what I'm calling a supersize slashathon, where uh, we did a massive two and a half hour episode just talking about the music of the late '90s slasher boom, playing things by Marco Baltrami for Scream and Scream Two, and even Mimic, which we were just talking about. We have uh, debuting a suite of music that uh, from Urban Legend that Chris Young put together, um, that he is so graciously letting me play on the show. Uh, and uh, all kinds of other stuff. So, and I'm doing that with uh, the wonderful Rachel Reeves, kind of co-hosts that '90s episode with me. And uh, yeah, of course, I was with that over lunch, and uh, it turns out the H20 score, fantastic motivator to get work done. You feel like there's <laughs> someone behind you the whole time. And 
Square to Death, uh, the Dark Art of Sky movie music is on Kickstarter. Um, it's a lot of uh, interesting tier rewards, including the album that we talked about uh, four hours ago when we started this episode. <laughs> and uh, But uh, yeah, help make the film a reality. And if you can't contribute financially, please spread the word. That is also extremely important and supportive, letting other people know it exists through social media and whatnot. It's uh, extremely helpful. You're the man. Get out there and start canvassing. Folks, this has been Box Office Pulp. We hope you had a good time. Thank you for listening. Get the hell out of here. Oh, God, who shot the conductor? (laughs) (laughs) And like that, he's gone. This is Box Office Pulp Guy, and this has been a Pulp Podcast production. Now, please, 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 put a gun in my mouth and pull the trigger and say goodnight. And now, on with the show.